This was recorded live at Trinity Church in San Juan, Puerto Rico. For more information, go to trinitypr.org. Well, uh, good morning, Trinity. We're going to... We're going to continue in our study of the Apostle John's first epistle. So that's what we've been studying. And if you will recall, uh, John was Jesus' main disciple and his best friend. So about 50 years after the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus, John moved from Jerusalem to Ephesus. And so now John is an old man who is writing to young churches and young Christians. And let me just warn you, he's really salty. He's an old man now. He's salty. Now, I'm excited about this text this morning because John is going to use a lot of Christian trigger words. John's going to say things like, we know that we are in the last hour. Or the Antichrist is among us. Or... You have the anointing, right? Now, if you grew up in a more traditional or fundamentalist background, you probably have visions of Nikolai Carpathia from the popular Left Behind series kind of running through your imagination. Some of you probably remember books on Christian bookshelves uh, warning uh, that Mikhail Gorbachev was the Antichrist, right? Because he had that birthmark on his head. And that Y2K was the last hour, right? Y'all remember this. Or chain emails naming leaders from uh, other political parties as being the Antichrist, right? The Antichrist always looks very similar to people whose politics we disagree with, right? Uh, So for the person who comes from a religious background, John is going to demystify some of that weirdness while at the same time helping you to understand that Satan's tricks are way more ordinary and therefore more dangerous and present than the machinations of some enigmatic, deplorable uh, political figure, all right? Now, on the other hand, some of you ha- uh, grew up in a more irreligious uh, background, and you have no idea what I'm talking about so far, right? Uh, you heard the word secularism, and you think, well, you know, back in the day, people were pre-scientific and were superstitious, so the churches were full, but now people know how the world works, and so people don't go to church anymore, and as a result, people are free from those superstitions and myths that enslaved people by telling them how to live their lives. For irreligious people, there's nothing spiritual or transcendent, right? Humans just make their own meaning. And evil is nothing more than childhood trauma or a person taking away the choices of another person, right? So for the person with that background, John is actually going to spiritually enchant your world and help you to see that there are real spiritual realities. And if you ignore them, you will be naive and vulnerable. There is a spiritual reality behind everything you see. And in fact, you can't understand or explain the world without it. And you don't want to be duped, right? So for the religious person, John is going to demystify. And for the irreligious person, he's going to enchant and charge with spirituality. 
Now, if you allow me to extend this introduction, because I want to take time to remind us of the context so that when we actually read this passage or this morning, you'll have a mental map of what's happening. So in the churches where John, the Apostle John was pastoring, there is this faction that started causing trouble, right? Uh, this particular group was seduced by proto-Gnosticism. So real briefly, in Eastern philosophy, they taught that the, the material and physical world is an illusion. But in the Western world, the Western philosophy taught that the material world is real, but it's evil. So Gnostic thought, which is more principally in the West, sees the spiritual world uh, as perfect and unblemished, while the physical world is corrupt. And they begin to pit the two against each other. So this faction start fusing Gnostic thought with the gospel. So Eusebius, who's an early church historian, he tells us that one of their main leaders is this guy named Serinthius, and he taught that there was this Jesus of Nazareth, and then there's the Messiah, which is God's spirit. And at Jesus' baptism, the Messiah entered Jesus of Nazareth, but right before his crucifixion, he left, right? That's, that's what he was teaching. So this is a complete denial that, the, that God the Son became the incarnate God-man who suffered, died, and was buried and resurrected. So in this way, he denies that Jesus of Nazareth was the Messiah, and so John steps into that context and he says, if you dare teach that, you are an antichrist. That is, you are against the Messiah and you will perish. Now, antichrist is not a formal title. It's a label that describes what they're up to. And let me just say, this language is not too strong. So the leaders of John's church confronted this faction and this faction defellowshipped them. They left. They left. And after they left, the rest of the Christians, they were in shock. I mean, these are people they used to go to church with, right? And so quite frankly, honestly, they're feeling a little bit insecure. And so John does two things. First, he says, listen up, everyone. Nobody freak out because this is super predictable because we are in the last hour. Last hour. What's that? Uh, no, this is not a call to buy sandwich boards and a bullhorn and camp out on the corner telling everyone that the end is near, right? That's not, this is not John saying that you have 60 minutes left, all right? Uh, let me explain what this means because these are confusing words and terms. Jews and Christians have always understood human history as a thing that belongs to God, God himself presides over time. History is unfolding like chapters in a book. In God's history, there are four chapters. Chapter one is creation, when God made all things beautiful and perfect. Chapter two, the fall of man. This is when man's rebellion against God that ruined all of God's awesome creation. Chapter three, Redemption of that creation through using Israel. This is before Christ, so they're waiting for the Messiah. Now, between chapters 3 and chapter 4, Jesus the Messiah, he arrives, he dies, he resurrects, and he ascends. And then in chapter 4, the final chapter, is the redemption of the Christian using the church now. That's both Jews and Gentiles. And the fourth chapter of God's history will culminate when Jesus returns or comes to his people a second time to complete 
this restoration project, this plan of redemption. So the last hour is a reference to this final chapter in human history, with the bookend being Jesus' return, him coming back. There are no extra chapters in world history. So we are living, we are living, as were they, in the last hour. So that kind of explains the last hour talk. Now, furthermore, John says, these kinds of shenanigans with antichrists and people teaching heresy are totally marks that we're living in the last chapter, in this last hour. So the behavior of these false teachers who left the church, they shouldn't freak you out because they're totally predictable, right? The Old Testament warns of this kind of thing. We looked at one short passage in Daniel chapter 7 in our Old Testament reading, and Jesus himself would warn of this thing even in the New Testament. And so that's kind of the first thing that, that John does. Are y'all following me so far? We're still in the introduction. Then the second thing he does is he gives three tests to show that they pass them and that the people from this Gnostic faction fail them. So John wants them to have certainty. Certainty is his heart for them. Just to quickly review what we've been talking about these last few weeks. The first test was the behavior test. This showed that those who did not pursue Christian fellowship were false Christians. There's no such thing as a DIY, do-it-yourself Christian, right? And this includes then pursuing honest relationship where we confess our sins, we admit our faults, and it's authentic and vulnerable, all right? The second test that we talked about was the love test. So we talked about how Christians must love God and love one another with this radical love modeled by Christ, and then in that love, work intensely not to love the system of the world. That was last week. And so today we come to the third test, and this is the doctrine test. The Apostle John is going to say, what you believe and say about Jesus matters. The details matter. And this knowledge is not just a set of dry propositions and facts. This is knowledge that stirs and changes you with his spirit. John says that your knowledge comes from your anointing. This is not about knowing theology trivia about God. This is knowledge that comes from God's spirit and it presses into your heart and it transforms you. And therefore, you know that you belong to the Lord. So today's passage is this doctrine test. And it's filled with these really important trigger words, right, that I've mentioned. So pay attention to them as we read the text. I'll do my best to help us understand why this is critical to following Jesus and living in the way of Jesus in our modern world. And so there's, as we read it and as we teach through there, there's going to be two ways that we're going to examine this passage about doctrine. We're going to learn that doctrine is inevitable and inescapable. And we're going to learn that doctrine is not just about your brain. It's not just about head knowledge. All right? So with that introduction, would you, in reverence to God's word, would you stand with me? We're going to give careful attention to God's holy, relevant, and infallible word. Hear now the word of God according to 1 John, starting in chapter 2. And you have it also printed in your bulletin. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. 
Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not all of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you have all knowledge. I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he has made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you received from him abides in you. And you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. The grass withers, the flower fades, but God's word will endure forever. May he bless it for you and for the preacher. You may be seated. It's a lot of intro because that's a really, you know, kind of a thick passage. We're all in agreement. All right. So more and more frequently, you'll hear uh, sociologists and political scientists evaluate various countries in the, in the world in terms of hard power and soft power. So hard power is a country's ability to exert its military and economic might in order to achieve its interests and get people to do what they want it to do. Now, soft power is not coercive, but it describes an entity's ability to dominate through persuasion and influence. So for instance, Hollywood, or Facebook exerts soft power by shaping and curating how we perceive and think about reality. So a big conversation that kind of comes out from the Department of Defense uh, is how um, is, is, um, people are, uh, is Russia's new tactics to exert soft power. So in Russia, they have what some people call these troll factories, right? So troll factories are people who are creating fake news and getting into social media to persuade and and, and curate a certain version of reality. So for instance, it's well documented that Russia, right, was heavily involved in both the Black Lives Matter movement and the, the white Aryan supremacy movement, right? They're both. They're just like causing the stir. Why would Russia do that? It's because Russia has learned that ideas and beliefs are more dangerous and destructive than guns and tanks. And they're trying to stir up dissension and chaos to disastrously destabilize the United States from within. That's soft power. Now, this is exactly what happened in the second chapter of human history, the fall, the fall of man, when the serpent came to hurt Adam and Eve. He didn't come at them with a sword. He came at them with an idea. The serpent distorted reality. Did God really say that? Did it really? And in that moment, Adam and Eve had two competing notions of truth, but only one was right. 
That is what is happening in Apostle John's congregation. And John would have none of it, right? And so he uses the strongest language possible. In verse 18, he calls them antichrists. In verse 22, he calls them liars. Look at verse 22. He says, who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the antichrist, he who denies the father and the son. No one who denies the son has the father. No one. And what John is doing is demanding that we pay attention to the details. Christianity is not generic spirituality. There is a thing called truth, and it matters. And our doctrine helps us to understand precisely what we believe. False ideas can become more toxic than poison gas. The Apostle John is serious about this. The vision of truth and lies, truth and lies are falsehoods, is extremely important for a lot of reasons in our modern culture. But let me just enumerate two for us. And the one is relevant within the church and one is uh, relevant for the society at large. Let me um, begin with the church. The focus in our passage is on the doctrine and the core, the very core of the gospel. John is not using this strong language carelessly or to protect his own reputation. Listen, John is not being personally attacked or, 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 or talking about secondary issues like can Christians drink beer or have tattoos? No, 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 no. That's not what's going on here. All right? These are core issues. Listen, because I want you to understand this. Pastors can be questioned. Pastors and teachers can make mistakes. What we say, the applications we make are quite imperfect, right? If you've ever seen a pastor, when questioned on his particular judgment, quickly labels that person as questioning the Lord himself, then what you have is spiritual manipulation. Lamentably, it happens. It is so dark when a pastor labels those people who disagree with them as being liars or fundamentally against the gospel itself like an antichrist. And I'm really sorry because we all know this, right? Evangelical pastors are oftentimes egomaniacs. I'm, I'm sorry about that. That is not what's going on here. John is not being touchy. It's not that his ego is fragile. The apostle John is not defending himself. Rather, he is defending the very vision of truth that if denied, completely collapses the gospel itself. See, if we don't get Jesus right, then everything else goes wrong. The stakes could not be any higher. And this brings me to the second reason, which is relevant. And it's not just within the church, but the society at large. Now, follow my logic here, everyone. The Apostle John is operating on a certain notion of truth that is not, not popular in our culture. See, we live in a world that does not think that truth with a capital T, even exists. So for all of history, people understood that truth exists external to one's belief. So ideally, you want your belief to line up with the truth, but if it doesn't, truth trumps belief. Just because you believe something doesn't make it so. Truth is external to us. That is a certain vision of truth. Now in recent times, 
And I, I don't have the time to talk about this philosophically with deconstruction and so forth. Y'all know I love that stuff, but I'm going to save you that. But that concept of truth has become really unpopular and a new concept of truth has replaced it. Instead of aligning ourselves to external reality, now we align reality to us. We make it conform to our personal truth. And so now we use personal pronouns in front of the word truth. Our culture says, find your truth, live your truth, speak your truth. Now, this is a shift away of how we used to talk about truth, which was like, find the truth, speak the truth, uh, live the truth, right? Now, it's important that we understand the underlying assumptions of the Bible, because if you, because if you don't, you'll not, you won't be able to understand John's strong language. See, if you don't understand this vision of truth that I'm telling you exists, you'll be tempted to say, sheesh, John is so harsh. And this group of people, they were just trying to live their truth. <laughs> the Bible is so intolerant. Doctrine does not matter we are all worshiping the same God. We just use different names according to our truth, right? John disagrees. In verse 23, he says, no one who denies the son has the father. In other words, God, understood in the widest possible sense, is impossible to know apart from the son. If you reject Jesus... There is no access to God, no matter how sincere your belief is, because truth trumps belief. The details matter. In our culture, it's very much in style to search for truth. But if you purport to have found the truth, then you will be considered dangerous and intolerant. See, in our culture, you're allowed to look for the truth, but you can't find it. Certainty is really passe. It's really off-putting. And why is that in our culture? We have a deep-seated fear over the exclusive properties of truth. The word inclusive has taken on a new role of prominence. And some, listen, some of this is really, really good. I'm not, I'm not here preaching being cynical being inclusive can be really beautiful. And I'm not, I'm not making an apologetic for traditional culture because it had its sets of terrible sins too, all right? But there is this dark side when we're not careful and precise. Truth has historically been understood as exclusive. Now, when you hear the word exclusive, don't import the idea of grumpy, all right? Truth is intrinsically exclusive. Like when you say that two plus two is four, you're making a truth claim and it excludes five and three. It's not trying to hurt anyone's feelings. It just, it's just exclusive, right? That claim excludes other options. Well, this is the case with doctrine as well. Doctrine describes Jesus in a very specific way and that naturally excludes other options. Now, people can perceive this, what I'm saying. They can perceive it. They can intuit it when we speak about Jesus. And so people understandably retort, you Christians, you're so exclusive. You think that the only way to God is through Jesus. Your doctrine is so dogmatic. And so we ask, well, what do you believe? And they say, well, I believe that what is important to God is that, we, that you're a good person. That's what's important to God, that you're a good person. Now, we've talked about this before, but it bears repeating. 
when a person asserts that good people go to heaven, that itself is a doctrine that is as exclusive and dogmatic as any other doctrine. When I hear that doctrine, I think, that is so exclusive. Only good people go to heaven? What about the rest of us, right? Or, or what about those who didn't have the same opportunities because maybe they grew up in families that were socialized into a life of crime or addiction or, or whatever the case is, right? See, implicit in the truth claim are all kinds of beliefs about what is good or how good is good enough, right? Everyone's playing on the same field. In other words, that doctrine, the good works doctrine, privileges certain people and, and dare I say it, namely white, educated, Western, socialized people, while the rest of us are on the outs. See, all truth claims are inherently exclusive. Doctrine is inevitable. It's inescapable. And because it's inevitable, you better be precise when it comes to knowing God. The problem is not the existence of doctrine. Doctrine is inescapable. What's important is that the truth being propagated is accurate. And when it is not, it can be extremely dangerous. How we, how we curate our understanding of God is extremely critical. Just as we saw with these Russian troll factories or with Adam and Eve and the serpent, ideas can wreak havoc. And for this reason, the Apostle John was extremely stern. He's, he was even willing to divide over it. Right? He's stern. I want you to understand why there's stern language here. All right? All right, let's move to our second point. So we looked at the nature of doctrine. It's inevitable. It's inescapable. But it's also important that we understand that doctrine is not just something you do with your brain. And if you don't understand this, John will be really difficult to understand. When the Apostle John asks this question... What does it mean to be human? I mean, if we could peek into his mind, what does it mean to be human? He would say that there is this profound and inseparable union between your heart and your head. And in fact, according to the Bible, we see and we think with our hearts, not our brains, with our hearts. This is how come the apostle Paul in a different letter would plead that the eyes of your heart would be opened. This vision of our humanity with the head and the heart united was the dominant understanding for most of history. It began to change around four centuries ago with the Enlightenment. History lesson, everyone. This is sometimes called the age of reason because thinkers reimagined what it meant to be human, separating the brain and the heart. And it was supposed that the brain was the receptacle of knowledge and the heart was just the generator of emotions not suitable for finding objective truth. So imagine a person, right, uh, you're, you're supposed to imagine a person who's neutral and disinterested, maybe a scientist wearing a lab coat, just coldly discovering bits of truth that are out in the universe. Now, while there are a lot of wonderful, amazing things that came as a result of these methodologies, we in the West fundamentally began to misunderstand how we relate to knowledge, believing that our hearts had no business in the realm of truth. And this, of course, is a problem. True knowing, listen, true knowing, biblically speaking, always involves a committed relational aspect. To know something means that the thing can press into your life and you live in light of it. 
And this is so present in the mind of the biblical writers that to know someone, to know a person is often a euphemism for sexual intimacy. Like, right, Adam knew Eve, Isaac knew Rebecca, and so forth. And so you don't know that a chair can sustain you until you sit in it, right? Until you sit in it. So what's the point? When John wants to give assurance to the church that they know God and know his truth, he says, verse 20, you have been anointed by the Holy One. And what what does that mean? And you have all knowledge. Interesting, right? And then in verse 27, John alludes to it again. He's saying, look there, verse 27, the anointing that you have received from him abides in you. That anointing is this relational knowing of God. It is abiding so much, though, that it includes, look at the second part of verse 27, that you have no need that anyone else should teach you. His anointing teaches you, says John, about everything. Interesting. Y'all see that connection between knowing and anointing? This is a kind of knowing that does not separate your brain and your heart. It is knowledge that presses into your heart, and, it, and that means that life cannot be business as usual. So what do we learn about this nature of truth and this uh, nature of truth and doctrine from this? And what, what's the application for us today as modern people? So the Apostle John is implicitly critiquing kind of two extremes, all right? If your relationship with Christ is understood as the ability to have all the right answers, right? You're just in agreement with propositions about theology, about God, but it never melts you. You agree to those things, but it never melts you. If it's just life as usual as a Christian, then you need to have a serious heart check. Knowledge that Jesus is the Messiah is brimming with the Holy Spirit, and you cannot be numb. In that Um, In the same way that a husband and a wife, they know each other and therefore they organize their dreams and their priorities around each other, so must be your marriage with Christ. That is what true knowledge does. It presses into your life. It presses into your heart. And now on the other hand, if your relationship with Christianity is summarized by a a therapeutic and cathartic emotion, but your vision of Jesus is never informed by the details of his self-disclosure, his word, then you too need to have a serious heart check. For those of us who've spent any time in megachurches, we have seen how spirituality can turn into self-centered, drive-through spiritual fills-up, right? People spend 20 years in churches getting their goosebumps, but do not know their faith. Why? Because it's man-centered instead of God-centered without knowledge, right? Christians believe that God can be known, and so we feverishly study God's word to know him. The details matter. John looks at that faction of people who were in his churches and said, they are not of us. They are not Christians. I mean, they use the word Jesus, and they get Gnostic spiritual euphoria, but they are talking about someone else, but it's not the Jesus who is real, who's true. Again, marriage with Jesus is our acknowledgement that we seek to truly know the person for who they are, not who we project them to be, but who they truly are. If Jesus is real, 
then he has a nature. He has values. He has priorities. And we must seek to know him, not just get something from him, not just get an experience from him. Thankfully, when the Apostle John addresses doctrine, it's neither cold and detached and cognitive, nor is it a formless void of therapeutic emotion. True knowledge and doctrine is inescapably tied to the Spirit's anointing. Doctrine is not a bad word. It's a word that we cannot do without, but it's transformational knowledge. It presses in. All right, let me just quickly conclude. This passage is filled with all kinds of trigger words, right? right? Uh, and so I wanted to kind of examine some of those because it's really relevant for modern people. John wants to give us all certainty and assurance. John wants you to believe that you are enough because Jesus is enough for you. And so one last verse, verse 25, the apostle John says, this is the promise that he made us, eternal life. Now I mentioned earlier, you guys, that certainty is really off-putting in our culture. If you go to your next dinner party, right, and say, no, literally, just go over there, hanging out with all your friends, and you say, I am absolutely positive and certain, no doubt in my mind that God loves me, and I will spend a real eternity with him forever. If you talk like that, you will look like a fool at best. More likely, you will be seen as dangerous. When you say something like that, people will project onto your words that you're saying that you're morally better than them or that you're more spiritual than them. Your certainty about God's love will feel like judgment to them. But that could not be further from the truth. Listen, you guys. Listen, if a person says good people go to heaven, then certainty would indeed mean that. It would be judgy. You did it, right? You're so good. I hope all the other strugglers can achieve your, your status, right? That is not, listen, that is not what Christians believe. We believe that we are such a mess that we can't do it. Our certainty does, uh, our certainty comes by saying, um, not that we're better than other people, Right? It comes by saying we are decidedly worse than other people. And therefore, Christ is my only hope. That's all I've got. Right? That is an exclusive claim, as is all truth. But my goodness, that is a really humble thing to say. That is a really humble thing to say. And that's why Christians never have permission to be arrogant and judgy. We are beggars, but God gives to those who ask. We're beggars, but he gives to the people who ask. Your certainty is tied to Christ and his performance, not your own. May that truth, may that doctrine press into you, melt you in the deepest possible way. Amen? Amen.